Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Amen. Take your Bibles, open them to Genesis chapter 2. And the title of our Bible study today is The Perfect Rest and the Perfect Garden. And it's good to be reminded today as a church family that it's important for us to be committed to God's Word. It's important for us to be committed to the reading and the study of God's Word, to being filled with His words and His desires and His purposes so that we might follow through with what the Bible tells us to do to set our minds on spiritual things and not on things of the earth, so that our study through Genesis is doing just that, as we're coming back to the very beginnings. Genesis is a book of roots, our roots. And we happen to be in a season as a church where we're not only looking at our roots from the perspective of God in Genesis, but we're also studying our roots as a church family from the perspective of the book of Acts. And I just love how God has brought us together so that we can grow, reminding, being reminded of where we've come from so that we know where God wants us to go. The book of Genesis is a book of beginnings. And when we know our beginnings, it gives us purpose and substance to our lives. Genesis is a book of theology teaching us important truths about the nature and character of God. And if you're taking notes, I want to remind you how to approach the Bible. This may be new for some of you, and it may be review for others, but it's good to know how to approach the Bible as we understand its power upon our lives. It's transformative. When you're reading the Scriptures, it transforms you. It transforms your mind. It transforms your thinking. And when your mind is changed and your thinking is changed, your behavior is changed. And the Bible requires three things. Number one, it requires our full attention. Our full attention. Our minds should be open and awake and focused without distractions to the best of our ability. Secondly, the Bible requires our retention. Our mind should be put into a place where we read it, we memorize it, which has been a lost art among the church. I mean, just consider your own life the last time you memorized a, a scripture or a portion of scripture where you've addressed an issue, you received a word through a Bible study, or you received a word if you were being counseled by a pastor or being given direction by a friend, and there was just a verse that spoke to you. I mean, take that and hide it in your heart so that you won't sin against him. So it'll be a continual help to you. We want to be able to recall things. We want to learn how to take notes in Bible study. You can do that on your iPad. You can do it on a piece of paper. You, however, it's going to help you to remember. But we don't want to waste our time. As we're sitting and presenting ourselves to the Word of God, we want to take it in so that we can remember it later. Even writing in your Bibles. You know, it's okay to write in your Bibles. Every time, I, you know, I've come back to the Bible I've used for all these years, and every time I open it, I mean, there are literally years and years and years of notes right here in my Bible. As I'm sitting down, as I'm studying, as I'm listening to Pastor Chuck or my Pastor Jeff or Pastor Skip or whoever I'm listening to just jotting notes down and sometimes putting little dates down that God gave me a word or a promise. Attention, retention. Thirdly, 
It requires our intention. Intention. What I mean by that? As we read this, we need to live it. And that requires an intentionality about your life. We're not just learning for the sake of learning or learning so we can spout off some answer or win Bible trivia. We're in the Word of God because it's going to change our lives and we have a commitment to live it. A commitment to allow it to transform us and then we follow through in action. We often will refer to that as obedience. I like to remember obedience. When you think of obedience, at the same time, I want you to, re- I want you to think of the word cooperation. When you think of obedience, because sometimes that can be a heavy word, you must do what you're told to do. That is true. But when we choose to do what we're told to do, we're actually cooperating with the will of God in our lives. So, you know, if you don't like the word obedience, use the word cooperate. When you cooperate, you submit, you submit yourself to the direction and the will of God. You obey. You do what you need to do. And so our time in God's word should be daily, right? We should read our Bible and pray every day. It's literally food, just like you eat every day, physical food. We want to eat every day spiritual food. It's food for your soul. Secondly, our time in God's word should be diligent. The Bible says in 2 Timothy that to be diligent to present yourself a worker not, that doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Be diligent about it. Show yourself approved. And our time in God's word should be direct. What do I mean by that? You know, before you grab a commentary or before you listen to a Bible study from some pastor or teacher, you need to be directly in God's word. You need to test everything that's said by a pastor from God's word, but how will you know where to test it if you're not in the word yourself? And then finally, our time in God's word should also be delightful. There should be a delight about hearing God's word. And I don't want you to to be discouraged when you're reading the Bible and you're like, well, I didn't get much out of it. I didn't get much out of it. Well, you got a lot out of it. You just haven't experienced it yet because God's word will not return to you void. So you're taking it in, you're taking it in. And I, and I love how Jesus described it. He described it like a seed, like a sower. And you're sowing seed. And so as you're taking the word of God, you're sowing the seed of God's word into your life. And you don't know exactly when it's going to grow. You don't know exactly how it's going to grow. But I'll tell you this, you know it's going to grow. God is going to do a work through the word of God in your life. And, and that's a choice that we make right here at the beginning. This, this isn't important. So why the emphasis on God's word? Because you have to make a choice. Everyone listening to me right now, here in the room, downstairs, if you're listening on the radio or online, watching online, you have to make this choice. Most of you have already made it, but some of you haven't. And it's a choice that we kind of overlook and maybe don't pay attention to, but I want to remind you, because it's from a previous study. Here's the choice. Do you believe the very first verse in the Bible? Because the decision of how, whether you believe Genesis 1-1 dictates how you approach the rest of the Bible. And there's only two options. You either believe it or you don't. And you can come back to me with me if you'd like to Genesis 1-1 where it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Do you believe it or not? Because the Bible says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Do you believe it? Now, I know there might be some listening that don't believe it. Instead of in the beginning God, they live their lives 
in the beginning, man. And it may not be them. It may be some other man, some theory, some false religion. But ultimately, if, if it's in the beginning, God, then that's the course of your life. If it's the in, in the beginning, man, then you're going to go off into areas creating God in your own image, little g, and your whole life is going to be a mess. Because there's no direction and no substance, no certainty. And I think when you come to Genesis 1.1, the real acid test is what did Jesus say and what did Jesus believe? Because Jesus' reference in Matthew chapter 19, why don't you turn over, we'll get back into chapter 2, but notice with me in Matthew chapter 19, as Jesus is teaching, Jesus is giving us insight on marriage and divorce. And notice what he says. In chapter 19, Matthew says, Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these sayings, that he departed from Galilee, and he came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, verse 3, testing him, saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And listen to his answer. He says, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. The very foundation of marriage is rooted where? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created. Jesus believed in a literal creation of God. Why? Because he is God and he is creator. So we turn to Jesus and say, okay, with all of the debates and all the people arguing about it, and you may not even feel super equipped on how to talk in these, all these arguments and debates, just make it simple. What did Jesus believe? Because you trust Jesus. Yes, everybody trusts Jesus. So you can trust his teaching. Even when you don't have the kind of knowledge that you need to win an argument or win the debate at the office and some guy found something on YouTube that all confused you, just set it aside, come back to your word and let Jesus teach you fresh and new. It's okay to be that simple. Because it'll give you the kind of clarity and it'll give you kind, the kind of confidence that we need in a world that's upside down and confusing. So now, when we start this new chapter, chapter one and two, wouldn't you know it, there's more debate between these two chapters. And there's confusion that's been created over the years. When coming to chapter one and chapter two of Genesis, there are many people that cry, contradiction, contradiction, or have even created a a teaching that says chapter one is a description of creation number one and chapter two is somehow a creation number two by God. But that's not what this is at all. Chapter one takes us through the days of creation individually. Chapter two gives us insight on some specifics of creation. So chapter one lays it out individually, but chapter two gives us some specifics with special emphasis on day six and the creation of man. Okay, with all that in mind, verse one 
of chapter two. Thus, the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. So God finished everything. And four times it's emphasized that God has completed his work. It's almost as if God stands back and with a quick quick glance at all that he's done, he has a contented eye over his finished creation. His work of creation is finished. And you know, the words, it is finished, rang out at the end of creation, just as they ring out once more at the end of redemption. There's something to be said about God's finished work. It's important in the beginning, as God starts and ends, and there's, there's purpose and goal of God that he accomplished. And it's also super important in the new covenant. When you think, when you hear the words of Jesus on the cross, it is finished, that puts you at a place of dependence upon him and you now don't have, you don't have a relationship with God that's performance-based because God has finished it on the cross. He has finished it. So as we learn in previous studies and even on our weekends, we, we have a responsibility. What is that? Abide, rest, trust. And as the branch is into the vine, and all that God has intended takes place very naturally, there's great fruit. And what is God's will for your life? That you bear what? Much fruit. Not a little bit, but much. And that he would do the work through you. God is still at work today. He's not an absent creator, but very active in the affairs of man. Drawing many to his son, Jesus Christ, ever interceding on our behalf, bringing up ever-present help in time of need, always mindful of us. And then he says in verse two, on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested. He rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. And then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. And I challenge you to look in just verses two and three, how many times the name of God or God is referenced. And you'll see there's quite a few because this is the central focus. It's easy to see the emphasis on this day of rest or what's commonly known as God's Sabbath that he blessed and sanctified the seventh day. It was his Sabbath, his Sabbath. That's important to understand in the very beginning. Because again, all of the confusion and all the confusing teachings on the Sabbath start far beyond where they need to start. They need to start behind the teachings of man. So what did God intend? How did it all start out? What is it exactly and what was God's intention? Notice it says in verse 3 that God blessed the seventh day. And you might want to mark this word. He sanctified it. It's a very important word, sanctified. It means literally, if you like to write in your Bible, circle the word, it's sanctified, and it means to be set apart. It means to be set apart. To put, you could also say, it means to be put in a special place for a special use. Or a more fancy word, it's consecrated. Consecrated. 
set apart. It's got a special place and a special purpose. Now, before we look at the day, let's just step back for a second and consider you. Do you consider yourself sanctified toward God? Have you ever considered that in your life? Sanctified. So you may not use the word sanctified. Perhaps you, have you ever considered yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ that you've been bought with the price by the blood of Jesus Christ and because of that, you are now set apart for a specific purpose for God. You, you haven't been saved. I haven't been saved for myself. I've been saved and set apart and sanctified for a special purpose for God. For some, it's a very dramatic change where you went from one part, one life, you were born again, you're a new creation in Christ, and it's a dramatic new creation in Christ. But no matter if it's dramatic or not, it is a definite change in your life. Again, hold your places in Genesis. Let's go back all the way to the back of the New Testament in 2 Timothy. I want to show you something in chapter 2 and verse 20. 2 Timothy chapter 2 in verse 20. This is a great passage of explanation when it comes to this thought of sanctified when it comes to you and me. So notice what he says. He uses the illustration of a house, Paul does. He says, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for honor and some are for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, there's the word in the Greek now, sanctified and useful for the master, right? You're sanctified in what? Useful for the master. See, your will, your agenda, your desire for life must be sanctified, set apart, so that you are useful for the master. Prepared what? For every good work. And then he gives some direction. How, how can you participate with this sanctification process, with this, this set-apart life? Well, run away from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart and avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. Sanctified, set-apart. Now, don't be confused with the work of sanctification that we learned many, many years ago when we were studying through the book of Romans, where the work of God as he's fashioning and molding you and create, creating you and changing you into the image of Christ, that, that is a form, that's a theological work of God in your life, sanctification. But when you back off that word and you understand there's also a posture and position that you have to be set apart for the master's use. I just want you to take that in. You know, God is sanctifying things, and right now we see sanctifying a day. But God just doesn't sanctify days because you're more important than a day. He sanctifies you. And there is a plan and a purpose uniquely for your life. And it's for being useful in the master's hands. That's his desire. How do you do that? You've got to run away from youthful lusts. You've got to die to yourself. You've got to pursue the fruit of the Spirit, looking for that place, peace, joy, love, the things that make for peace. And he said, you know, do it with other people like you are right now. Gather together with the saints, people that call upon. Them. You, know, you get encouraged when you're hanging out with people that call upon the name of the Lord. And if people that call upon the name of the Lord aren't encouraging you, rebuke them. Says, I didn't come to church to talk about football. 
I didn't come to church to talk about, you know, the economy. I came to church to talk about the Lord. And if you're not going to talk about the Lord, next, next, next. Because believe me, you want to talk about all those things within just a half hour, they're all going to be in your face again. You're all going to have to live them. You know, already we're thinking about, man, you're watching online because you didn't come. Because why? You got to get up early in the morning for what? Go to work. It's all going to be there. But when you're with the saints, there needs to be a sense of we're here for the master. Let's talk about the things of the Lord. Let's encourage one another. Let's pray for one another. Let's grow together. Let's check in on someone's life. Let's make sure you're doing okay. Let's look in the eye and even just pray for discernment. And it's like somebody's carrying something heavy on their eyes or their shoulders are slumped. We are sanctified for the master's use, church. Don't forget that. And you're not cooperating with being useful for the master. It's a miserable experience, whether you realize it or not. You're not living up to what God has done. The blood of Jesus Christ has changed you. So now, coming back to the day now, sanctified. He set up, sets apart this day. There's a day set apart so that it is a day of total rest. A day of total rest. You know, we have something similar in our culture. The model that God laid down is 6-1. Six, six days of work, one day of rest. We've changed it a little bit in our culture where it's five days of work and then two days of rest. But still the same principle. You were born to work and you were also born to rest. And you need both. You can't just keep working. I know it's valued today sometimes to be a workaholic. That's not God's will for your life. God's will for your life is not to be a workaholic. God's will for your life is to work hard and be faithful and to rest and to rejuvenate. And to honor him on the day that he sanctified for total rest. And I like that about God. We learn something in Genesis very early on. We serve a practical God. Or in Romans, what would he say? There's a reasonableness about God. He says, present yourself a living sacrifice, which is what? Your reasonable service. Isaiah tells us, why don't you come? God says through Isaiah, come and let's reason together. Like God is practical. He, he, is, he is a God who created work. And he also created rest. And there's so many people that are getting burned out today because they simply refuse to rest. And so God uses the Sabbath here, the seventh day. The word, the Hebrew word for Sabbath is Sabbat. And it just means to cease from work or to rest. Now, the Jews would create a systematic religious activity out of this day. And they would look to Saturday as a day of rest. And then now, you know, coming into, coming into the New Covenant and some other religious um, teachings, now all of a sudden Sabbaths become not a day of rest, but a day of worship, where that's the only day you can worship. And I've done studies on that. You can just go to our app or on our website and on the study section, just put in the search Sabbath. And I've gone in very depth of why the Sabbath and the way it's taught by many today is not uh, the only day you can worship God. You know, in Romans chapter 14, it doesn't matter the day. As a matter of fact, if you're a true worshiper of God, you're worshiping God on every day of the week. Amen? You're not just serving, waiting. I'm going to live like the world for six days, but boy, for an hour and a half on Sunday, I'll be a worshiper. No, no, you worship on any day of the week, any evening of the week. It's not a day for worship service. In Genesis, we learn that the Sabbath is a day for rest. 
Isn't that what you see in your scriptures? Do you see that right there? What did God say? He rested. It's a day of rest. It's been sanctified for rest. Now, rest certainly involves worship, but it's God-centric. God-centric. Jesus, he even clarified, again, the teaching is Jesus help us understand and clarified our approach to the Sabbath. The Sabbath was never meant to be a bondage. <laughs> it's a blessing. It comes from God. He goes, come on, guys, rest. I'm going to show you that you can get things done in six days and rest the seventh. I'm going to show you that. And that it become a pattern throughout his relationship with the nation of Israel, even, even to take that into their agriculture, into their land, and how they approach things, that you can work hard and rest. Or you could say, you know, our world says work hard, play hard, but God says work hard, rest hard. Rest in him. In Mark chapter 2, verse 27, it says, and he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Isn't that great? That's God's heart for you. Rest was made for man. It's a gift to you. Or in the New Living, I like how, he, how they translate it. It says, Jesus said in Mark 2, 27, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people, not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. That's the heart of Jesus for you. When he lays something down before you, some command, some prohibition towards sin or something, you have to approach it like God's giving it to you as a gift. This is for your protection. This is for your health. This is for your happiness. This is for your contentment. It's, it's not designed for you to make it a big burden and heavy, but rather to enjoy it. And so today we rest not on a special day as much as in a person. Final rest is found by faith in Jesus Christ. And that's really the kind of rest Jesus wants you to, God wants you to enter the kind of rest where you're not striving, 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 that you just have a simple faith in Jesus, that he is your all in all, and you can rest in him. Now, verse four, this is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Before any plant of the field was in the earth, before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. This is the history, or in some of your translations, the old King James, this is, these are the generations. And this is a phrase that's used some 14 times in Genesis, and it just basically means family history. This is the history. This is how it all went down. These are the records that Moses would have had access to. Before we ever get into the family histories of Adam, before we get into the family histories of Noah, we get the history of heaven and earth, which makes sense. That would be the right order. Before we find out any, about anybody, we find out about God. And so first thing we learn, the first thing we learn is that there was no rain upon the earth. There was no, before, before the before the field was, it says, before the plant of the field was in the earth, before any herb, verse five, the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth. So rain won't be experienced till when? Noah's flood. And a mist from the ground is what watered the earth. And creation scientists say that there was probably a water canopy that was covering the earth at this time, creating a very lush tropical environment. It was also very protective 
prior to sin of the damaging ultraviolet rays that would be blocked and the lifespans of man were much longer until the aging process uh, continued to accelerate after sin. And we'll see later in Genesis 7 when the flood comes, it appears that the part of the flood, the waters came up from beneath, but also that canopy was dropped on the earth and the waters rose. I want you to notice something as well, because there'll be a lot of firsts in Genesis, and I want you to notice there in verse 4, the phrase, the Lord God. And I'll speak specifically to those of you carrying uh, a Old King James or a New King James Bible. You'll notice that the word Lord is all in capital letters. And there'll be other times where the word Lord is, is, is capital L and then little O-R-D. But you'll often see this phrase or this word with all caps. Do you guys see that? L, capital O. It's a little bit lower, but it goes L, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That is the translator's way of trying to translate the name for God, Jehovah or Yahweh. And we've already been introduced in a previous study to the name for God, Elohim. But here, Yahweh or Jehovah, the definition means he describes himself as the becoming one. And we learn that later on as he reveals himself to Moses in Exodus. But whenever you see that, it's Jehovah God. Sometimes I'll even say it that way when I'm reading the Psalms or as reading through that he's reminding that before in the day that Jehovah made the earth and the heavens, the becoming one, the one that's competent, the one that's able to meet our needs. When, when, it meet, when he describes himself as the becoming one, he, he's trying to describe that relationship with you that he is all sufficient for you. He, he's all sufficient. And you know, we've, always, we've all had disappointing times with people where people have disappointed us, people have fallen through, you know, like, like you, you were depending on someone and they didn't come through for you. But when you think of Jehovah, I want you to think in all your dependence of God, he will always come through for you. You will never be disappointed. He will always do what's best for you, but also what will bring him the greatest glory. And so in verse seven, it says, now the Lord God, Jehovah God, formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. The Bible says in Psalm 103 verse 14 that God knows our frame and he remembers that we're just dust. And out of the dust, God creates his, or, or creates his crowning creation, man. And he were created in God's image. And it's interesting, people study these things and they say the same 17 elements that are in the ground are in you. Why? Because you were made out of the ground. And if you've ever, where, ever wondered where you've come from, here you are, the dust of the earth. And that's a good place to understand what God can do with dust and how he's intimately involved in your creation and mine. Every time I fail the Lord, every time I falter, every time I stumble, it's encouraging for me to remember my roots. It's also encouraging for me that when I begin to think, and there's just this phrase, you know, where it gets over into the realm of pride or the, the realm where when I begin to approach God on the basis of what I think I deserve, 
And then I begin to be upset and begin to demand from God or, you know, there's a lot of different ways that you can approach that. It can be a, a real self-pity place where, you know, oh man, woe is me, I don't get what I deserve. Or you can come to God with a, a, a higher level of pride to go, I demand this and this is not fair and this is not, should, ha- should not. Well, just remember where you came from. You're a big improvement from the dust that you were. I mean, you are not dirt anymore. You have been created by God and he has literally breathed life into you. So even those that are distant from God right now and not saved owe their life to their creator. Your life comes from God. You are in, in created in his image. And, and the word here that's used in verse 7, formed, is the same word that's used to describe a potter. So already we get a picture of the potter forming and shaping the clay. And this implies that God became directly involved in the shaping and the fashioning of man's physical body. Now, the, body, the elements of the body are very common, and I'm quoting now. We would need 58 pounds of oxygen and 50 quarts of water, 2 ounces of salt, 3 pounds of calcium, 24 pounds of carbon, and some chlorine, phosphorus, fat, iron, sulfur, and glycerin. The problem is, is if you had all those ingredients, how do they go together exactly to form a human body? The human body is so complex that an entity, uh, so complex an entity that no scientist can comprehend more than a fraction of its composition and functions. A person that, that launches off into the realm of science will literally spend their whole life studying these things and only coming to a fraction of the knowledge that God knows about the human body. Even as more scientific things are, are learned every year, more advancements, they haven't even scratched the surface of the knowledge of God. I mean, he's that, he's that amazing. Yeah, I, again, quoting, a mere piece of skin the size of a stamp requires three million cells, a yard of blood vessels, four yards of nerves, a hundred sweat glands, 15 oil glands, and 25 nerve endings, just the size of a stamp. And with an omniscient genius, God took that dust, that water, those odds and ends of his creation, fashioned them into the body of a man, end quote. It's just amazing. So man is both physical, but he's also spiritual. And again, women as well, men and women, physical and spiritual. Adam was made as a body, soul and spirit and the spirit was to rule man that's God's will to be on top I mean if you look at it you know kind of layered you you should you should see the spirit of God his a man's spirit ruling his life communing with God and the soul and the body or the flesh were to be governed by the spirit in relation to the desires of God but that's not what happens The unregenerate man lives according to the flesh. His flesh rules. And every time you and I turn our back on God, every time you and I compromise, every time you and I sin, it is not a spiritual decision. It's a fleshly decision. And God's intention is for you and I to have our spirits ruling in communion with God. At the fall of Adam, when we get to chapter 3, we'll see a drastic change in his nature. His flesh will take center stage pushing the spirit and the soul away from God, being ruled by his fleshly appetites. And this is precisely why a man and a woman must be born again. 
Another change must occur, putting the Spirit of God back on top to rule and reign in a Christian's life. Have you ever wondered why you give into the flesh so much? Have you ever wondered why your fleshly appetites seem to have the upper hand? Doesn't it, doesn't it cause you great consternation to sometimes just hear the things that come out of your mouth? Your mouth, not my mouth, your mouth. They go, oh no, Ed, I stopped out a long time ago. Okay, does it ever surprise you the words that you think in your head? Or the attitudes that you adopt? Or the labels you place on people? Does it ever surprise you? Do you think that's God's will for your life? Some of you label yourself. Does it ever surprise you when you take all your problems and project them on someone else and make it their fault when it's actually your fault? Where do you think that comes from? That's not a spiritual decision. God's, God's will for us is to take personal responsibility for our own lives. It's not someone else's fault. It's your fault. It's my fault. I stand before God naked and open before him. And when I stand there, it's not, I'm not going to be able to point the finger. Oh, no, you, no, God, you don't understand. If Marie wouldn't have done that, I wouldn't have done that. And you're just like, oh, you sound like Adam, Ed. You sound just like Adam. It's the woman you, God, you gave me. No, Adam, it's you. No, Ed, it's you. And I wonder how many of you today need to put that same thing. It's not just a marriage thing. We do it with people all the time. We do it with situations all the time. And in a culture that encourages this victim mentality, and I'm always, it's always, I'm, I'm always the victim. You're not the victim. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are victorious. You have the power of God in you. And you're just wasting your time blaming other people. Take responsibility and stand up and follow Christ. Let the Spirit of God rule and reign in your life. That's the beginning. This is God's heart for you. God's heart for you is to remember he fashioned us out of the dust and then he breathed his life into us and he's forming us like a potter. I know we don't always like the twists and turns of the formation process, but the end result is always beautiful. And God knows what he's making in your life. He wants to restore that communion and communication with him. And as he breathes, that's where life is comes from notice verse 8 now and the lord planted a garden eastward in eden and he put man whom he that's where he put man whom he had formed and out of the ground the lord god made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food the tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil now there was a river that went out of eden to water the garden and from there it parted and became four river heads the name of the first is pishon and it's the one which encompasses the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Bdellium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It's one that encompasses the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Hittikel, or you might have in your Bible, the Tig Tigris. It's one that goes toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. So God created this in perfect environment. And what does he do? He places man in this perfect environment. And what a beautiful, awesome, luscious, spectacular place. And what a job Adam must have had. He worked in an environment with no competition, no backbiting, no corporate ladder to climb. Nobody's telling dirty jokes. Nobody undercutting you or lying about you. It was a great environment. 
And we'll learn this as we continue to study through the book of Genesis, but it's important just to mention it now. Work is not the curse. You know, some of you look at you, oh man, work is just the curse. No, work is not. Work predated the curse. Adam was tending the garden and taking care of it, just like God intended. You see, God was practical, and God created us to be productive. God created us to be useful. God created us with special gifts and talents to use fit for the master's use, but also to bring us joy so that we might enjoy it. And even after the fall, the, the, the curse of sin brought work being hard and difficult and challenging, sweat of the brow, yes. But God's heart in work is for us to enjoy it. And even after the fall, Jesus would speak about the productiveness that pleases the Father, the productiveness of work that pleases the Father. Remember in John chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus said, my Father has been working until now, and I've been working. And work that pleases the Father pleases the worker. <laughs> Isn't that great? Like when I'm doing all things as unto the Lord, God is going to give me joy. And he's going to give me peace. Now it's going to be hard because we do live in a fallen world. We do live in a world touched by the curse, yes. But when I do all things as unto the Lord, there's a special gift because I'm going back to the garden and I'm saying, Lord, I know it's challenging. I know it's touched by sin, but what I'm doing is for you and that brings me joy. I was born for this. I was born. Work wasn't just to be vocational, but also it included recreation. It was to be fulfilling. Don't think of Adam as you might have been taught in school as some Neanderthal, you know, dragging Eve around by her hair and beating her over the head with a club like Fred Flintstone. Adam was a brilliant genius of a man. And prior to the fall, he was involved in all sorts of beautiful work. But, and this is where we'll close, in verse 9, these two, these two trees that he mentions would prove to be too much for Adam and Eve. One to enjoy and one to avoid, and it was just too much for him. And it reminded me, you know, there's no temptation that has overtaken man, that's, overta that's come to you that's not, well, let me read it to you. I'm going to quote it wrong. Go over to 1 Corinthians 10, and I'll just quote it from there so that we can say it right, and then we'll head out today. Because it's such a life-giving truth. So you think, man, man, if I was in the garden, I wouldn't have done that. All right. All right. I don't believe you, but okay, you can, you can think that. But listen to this. This is freedom. Those of you that think you got to go to the bar, those of you that think you got to go to that relationship, those of you that think you can't get out from under drugs or alcohol, this is, this is the verse for you. Memorize this and live it out and believe it. Because it says in verse 13, chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, no temptation is overtaking you except such as common to man. Listen, that's the hard part. Temptation. And it's hard. And it's just, it's just pressing in on you. And, and your body's responding. And your mind's responding. And you're, all of it. All of it. It's hard. This is the hard part. But here's the good part. But God. God is faithful. And he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Because with every temptation, he says, he's going to give you the way of escape. And you know, the habit of sin, you know how we can create habits of sin? 
We start, we, we start with someone we never thought it would become a habit. We never thought it would become a bondage. We never thought it would just disrupt and ruin our lives. That same habit, you can also have the habit of taking the way of escape. It can be a brand new habit. You take it once. You take it twice. You take it three, five, ten times. And before you know it, the habit of taking the escape is so much greater than the press and temptation of sin. And you go from, man, I'll never, ever get out from under this. This will be, this is kind of how the world operates. You know, I, this is, I, I, I share this because it's important. Like the world just says, you're going to be recovering the rest of your life. But the Bible says you'll be delivered in a moment of time. That you can walk in freedom. Oh, you may have to get through things and learn new habits. And it may be a temptation you face the rest of your life. I get that for sure but you walk in victory by your faith in Christ. And then you begin to look at your life and go, look at my life. I'm a new creation. I really am. And I face the temptation, but I'm taking the way of escape. Taking that way of escape. So Father, we just thank you for the freedom that we have. Temptations are hard and heavy and um, addictions, they get into the psyche and the physiological part of us. It's just so much. It's just too much for us, Lord. We need you to provide a way of escape. We need you to provide a way of escape in how we think and how we act, how our flesh is take preeminence over our spirit. We want to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We want your word to change us. We want to be able to withstand the wiles of the devil. We want to stand fast. And so I just pray, God, that you would pour out your spirit as we learn about, even from the very beginning, the need to rest, the need to just wind down, to work hard, to rest hard. Lord, and just enable us. I know some are listening, and like it's just, it's just been hard to rest. There's a fear and anxiety that, that creeps in if we might miss something, or someone might get ahead of us, or... And just replace that, Lord, with a, replace that with a sense of trusting you with our lives. That even if someone does get ahead or we lose this or whatever, while we're resting and someone else is working because you've got to get ahead in life, like, give us peace, Lord. You're going to take care of our lives. You always have. You always have. And you created us. You have a plan and a purpose. You sanctified us so we might be fit for the master's use. We just thank you, God, for your word. It encourages and strengthens us and gives us hope. And we leave here today with that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together, church. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223 or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.